This is Matt. And this is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well. Great. I'm enjoying this fall weather. Yes, finally. It's strange because sometimes we're really far ahead in our release schedule, and this is coming out in two weeks, right? Uh, yes. Uh, we, we we got a little overambitious. Um this is this is our first episode of October, but uh, going forward, we're going to be doing uh, weekly episodes this month, all horror themed. This this week's being the exception, and uh, yeah, we we bit off a little more than we could chew. We decided to um, make the podcast busier than it had ever been, while we were both simultaneously um, as busy as we've been all year. So uh, it's been a bit of a rush. We're a little behind on things, or behind in at least in terms of where we typically like to be. Sure. Um, the 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 advanced planning and giving ourselves a buffer worked out because we uh, we needed it. <laughs> we could literally talk about something topical, and people were like, "Hey, that's a recent reference." Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like, "Why are they talking about snow in in June?" Exactly. <laughs> uh, us. Oh, us. Yeah. In prep for this episode, you know, I figured we'd maybe kind of talk a bit about our TV watching, maybe from when we were younger. Yeah. Did you have any weird TV habits when you were a kid? Not when I was a little kid. It was pretty typical kid stuff. I do remember, I think it was 96 was when the Summer Olympics were in Atlanta. And I remember that summer, for whatever reason, watching a lot of Watching a lot of Gilligan's Island, Lost in Space, and um, Olympic rowing events. <laughs> That's what's the, what's the common denominator there? Um. Uh, well, I'd say water, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think it was just uh, for whatever reason. It was you know one of those one of those summers where uh, I was too young to have a job, and I think it was. Um, it may have been like the first summer that my folks left us alone when they were at work. So I'd just sleep in and I, I would, you know, have a bowl of cereal, watch watch Gilgan, watch Lost in Space, and then be like, oh, let's let's see how the U.S. women's rowing team is doing today. <laughs> that That's the only like weird TV habit I can think of. Huh. Interesting. What about yourself? I mean, I mean, if you've listened to the show, it's, it's, I'm sure everyone... Anyone who's listened to the show, I'm sure, is familiar that with the the fact that I'm just a, a pop culture junkie, and that started when I was young. And I lived, as previously stated, with my grandparents, and I just would go up into my into to their room, and because the other rooms were occupied by my uncles or my mom, and and I so I'd go up into my grandparents' room and I'd just watch everything <laughs> as much as I could, um, in. Uh, I guess my obsessive tendency started then, you know, and I used to just kind of draw a lot. So I just kind of sit there with a, a pad and pencil and kind of sketch and, and watch as much as I could. And I watched sitcoms, I watched cartoons, I'd watch older movies and anything that caught my fancy. I was really big into the 60s Batman television show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the original Star Trek Um which is strange because it seems a lot of people skip that, at least my age. Um, but I'm a little older than you, so I think I got a lot of those things in reruns. Uh, I didn't actually watch it in the 60s. Right, right. Not that old. Were there any um, 
Were there any TV shows that would be played in blocks, like multiple episodes in a row that you would always tune in for? Yeah, probably aforementioned shows. Yeah. I think were big for me. Um, I'm sure there are others that I can't recall. Um, I watched a lot of the big sitcoms when they were airing. So for me, that would be Family Ties and The Cosby Show. Um, I was really big into Night Court. Okay. I love Night Court. Um, yeah, but I was obsessive. So I would like, you know, I'd get the TV guide and I'd circle things in the TV guide and kind of read through and get prepped. So if there was a new season of, of television, uh, I'd look to see the shows that I thought were really cool and interesting and I'd circle those shows and I'd try to watch as much as I possibly could um, and just kind of read all the interviews and learn about uh, learn as much about television as I could. Well, that's a great segue because this week we've got a guest, uh, which I'm super excited about. Um, in a minute, we are going to be joined by Ken Reed, who is a stand-up comedian from Boston and is also the host of a great podcast called TV Guidance Counselor, where the premise is each week he has a, a guest on, um, frequently comedians, but he's had writers, he's had some pretty big actors from uh, TV and film. Um, the, the idea is that he he has a an immense collection, decades worth of TV guide issues, and he will have a guest pick an issue and they will go through uh, night by night and talk about the TV that they that their that his guest would have been watching. That's a great premise for a it's, podcast. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I tell him this in the interview that uh, I, I end up learning a lot about TV that I never actually watched, um, and uh, it's it's funny. I hearing other people talk about it or even reading about it. You know, that was sort of one one of the inspirations for our show is that we we sort of had this well of knowledge or familiarity with things that we haven't gotten to ourselves yet. I was the same with Star Trek when I was a kid. I didn't ever, I was watching Next Generation, but never watched the original, but I got a Star Trek encyclopedia for Christmas and I lost track of how many times I read that thing cover to cover. So I knew all about it, but I never, I hadn't watched it. And, uh, did you ever collect or, or, or go through the, through the TV guide or? No, we didn't have TV Guide yeah. in my house. We um, we had a subscription to the Boston Globe, and the Sunday edition always had uh, a local you know, TV listing that would have some articles in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would and I would certainly go through that, make yeah. sure uh, make sure I knew when uh, when my shows were going to be on, or if there's anything coming up that specifically I would look for movies, see if there are any movies going to be on that week. I don't remember if we had a subscription to it, but I remember a, I remember them. You know, like the size mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and just how it was laid out. I don't know if I would buy them. I used to go grocery shopping with my grandmother and maybe I would buy them then. And especially if there was some sort of show on the cover that appealed to me. I don't have specific memories about that, but I remember having them and having them frequently uh, and circling things. And that kind of eventually got to a point where it, I switched over to like Entertainment Weekly because I wanted more movies and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, so we're going to talk about Barney Miller today, which is a show that I never saw prior to this. Yeah, same. And uh, the reason we picked this is, you know, it's a blind spot for the both of us, but also having been a fan of TV Guidance Counselor for a while, it's a show that comes up a lot and Ken frequently talks about his uh, his love for this show. So I thought it'd be a great 
great way to get him on, um, have him kind of talk through uh, something that he's very passionate and invested in. And um, yeah, it'd be great to experience some classic 70s sitcom, which is, is kind of a, I, I get into it again in the interview, but I'm a little too young to have caught a lot of it in reruns. And, you know, Nick at Night was really doing heavy, you know, 50s stuff in rotation when I was, you know, tuning in for their, they'd always have their, their summer um, block party things where it would be, you know, Bewitched Be Wednesdays or Lucy <laughs> Tuesdays or something. Yeah. Um, did you know anything about Barney Miller before no. watching this? No. Yeah. I think, um, I think I was aware of it and it was one of those shows that seemed probably to a younger version of myself boring. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I don't. There's nothing wacky about this uh, that I that I connect to. So maybe this isn't a show for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was exciting to kind of watch some of that and, and <laughs> see if that <laughs> that held up. <laughs> cool. All right, so let's. Uh, so Matt unfortunately wasn't here, but this is my interview with host of TV guidance counselor Ken Reed. Great. Uh, so Ken Reed, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. This, uh, where we're recording is within uh, earshot of uh, a, a fabulous donut place that you cannot partake in. So I can't, uh, no. it was worth It was worth coming down for that alone. Exactly. Uh, the, the donut boom in Providence I've had to miss out on because of, uh, you know, got a gluten allergy. Got the uh, Cialic. Get the Cialic. All my friends were like, oh, now we're into fancy beers. I'm like, I can't, uh, I can't enjoy that conversation at all. Well, I will say, as a non-drinker, that makes sense. But uh, I think having some of these donuts would be worth the horrific pain and several days of unpleasantness and potential death that <laughs> you could endure because they're real good. Yeah, I won't die, but I am just a giant coward. So You might want to die, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you – I'm not saying you should commit suicide. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not encouraging that. But if you were to, uh, you know, say it's – say you have some sort of fatal disease, you have six months to live, mm-hmm. death by donut is a pretty good way to go. Yeah, that's not – you know, to be honest, my plan was just to uh, post up in a McDonald's drive through and see how many times I could do laps before the symptoms started to kick in. Okay, okay. I thought you were going to say you were going to rent a Santa suit, get a gun, and go to a mall and shoot yourself in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to die by eating. Ah, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a good way to go. But witnesses to the, the grossness that ensues would probably prefer that I killed them first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I just inhaled an Earl Grey donut that was c'est, c'est bon. Yeah. You know what? Watching sometimes is just as fun. Oh, you're one of them. I am one of them. <laughs> yeah, I just, like, I just like to watch. Yeah, I would have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... As, as a longtime listener of TV Guidance Counselor. So sorry and thank you. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> oh, it's so great. I uh, I know so much about TV I've never seen. Um, but I have, you know, uh, so I, I came to the show in the last few years, so I haven't been with this since the beginning. Uh, where does one get decades worth of TV Guide magazines? <laughs> uh, I purchased most of them myself as a kid. Okay. So from age four. I was paying for my own subscription. Uh, I would make some money. And uh, so all the stuff from the 80s and 90s are mine Mm -hmm. from my uh, subscriptions. Uh, Two libraries, one was in Nebraska and one was in Maine, were dumping all their physical periodicals. And so I just took all of their TV guides. Oh, (laughs) So it was a few decades worth. Yeah. Um, 
aside from that, they're very cheap. So you can just buy blind lots very easily. Mm-hmm. So what I used to do if I was traveling, so I go to LA a couple times a year, is I would literally just buy like a box of 100, 200 TV guides and have them shipped to like a friend mm-hmm. in LA yeah. and then just leave them there <laughs> um, or take some with me. So, But then people send me stuff. Um, but that's sort of the, the core, the sourdough starter mm-hmm. of the TV Guide collection <laughs> was my my own subscription. Yeah. And is uh, now how do you have like a, a complete sort of run from a certain era or? It's hard to have a complete run because uh, TV Guide had probably anywhere from 20 to 40 regional variants for every issue. Mm-hmm. And... Everything pre what they call pre-national. This is I'm sure fascinating for everybody. Oh, I'm but um, if you if you're aware of things like if you're a wrestling fan, um, this is a good analogy where the WWF essentially went and bought up regional wrestling companies and folded them all under WWF, mm-hmm. and that's what TV Guide did. So each region had their own TV magazine. Some were called TV Guide, some were like TV Forecast or whatever it was. They bought them all. The Philadelphia TV Guide bought them all and folded them all under the TV Guide banner. So they're relatively uniform after that. That was in 1957, I want to say. But before that, there's 15 years of TV guides in some cities like New England, New York. They had TV guides starting in like the early 40s. So there's a lot of weird variations. So I may have 20 copies of the same issue, but they're all different because they're from different regions of the country. Sure. Now, does the content change besides the the actual TV listing or? Uh, yeah. So the articles will be the same, um, but each issue has uh, some regional writing. So mm-hmm. they'll usually be like a regional update, you know, a couple pages. But then inside it's free reign. So there's totally different ads, all the UHF stations, there's different shows, there's regional, local ads. It's it's pretty varied. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I learned a lot about TV Guide today. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't published. Ha- <laughs> I didn't have – we didn't have a TV Guide subscription, but we would always get the – TV the, Week in the newspaper? The, yeah, the Globes version. Yeah. Um, my only memory of it is it must have been when the season of Star Trek The Next Generation was coming back after the cliffhanger where Picard was assimilated by the Borg. So, like, the, the cover was him as Locutus, yep. and it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, I think it was, like, 91, probably. Yeah. Yeah, that um, that that was one that if you're looking for a Boston Globe-free TV Guide edition mm-hmm. for to, for to hit your nostalgia button, that one is the one you will find everywhere. Because if it had Star Trek on the cover, like, you know, you know, nerds. Yeah. <laughs> um, but th- that one pops up specifically for sure. whatever reason. Yeah. I just remember not uh, just being aware that Star Trek was on in my house, uh, not knowing the context and seeing the good guy as the bad guy. And just yeah. my like, you know, six year old brain just kind of cracked. Are you only child or? No, I have a younger sister. OK, so you're the oldest anyway. So, mm-hmm. was it, so your parents were watching Star Trek? Yes. OK. Yeah. Yeah, but it became like a – it was a family thing. It was... Yeah. That show was enormous. Like mm-hmm. like the next gener- – I've never been a Star Trek person, but Next Generation was bigger than the original series. Like as far as uh, expanse of people that watched it, 
it was it really was an odd show that uh really captured whole families but also like teenage girls and like wide age range it was very very strange it was I mean a Riker's a hunk so that he explains is, the teenage true. girls once he grew the beard so oh absolutely it's the same as Michael Gross on Family Ties when he doesn't have the beard you're like <laughs> what the hell is this what what is this right I've come to find uh, in talking to people for the show that so many more people watched Star Trek Next Generation than I ever would have guessed like people that I would not have thought watched it and Almost all of them dislike or have zero interest in the original series of Star Trek. Like, they're almost two totally different, unrelated things. Yeah. Um, And I don't think many people who watched Next Generation were watching it because it was related to Star Trek original series. It was just like a new show. Yeah, I certainly didn't. uh, Not having seen the original series at that point didn't uh, make that an obstacle to get into it. It was also in like a weird... um, black hole for sci-fi mm-hmm. because it started in what 86 so it was four years after the last like big star wars thing three years yeah um which is huge in like kid years <laughs> like anything that's a high school length of time is a totally new group of people right and there wasn't really any sci-fi stuff on television at that time uh, and we, you know, it's pre T two kicking it off again. But there was like a three or four year period where there was not a ton of mainstream sci fi stuff. So I think it uh, it 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 sort of filled a niche that people didn't know they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever spoken with any of the the cast from any Star Trek series, um, either for your show or I know you do um, you moderate panels at yeah, conventions yeah. and stuff. I've at at conventions I've talked to almost the entire cast of. Uh, not Discovery, of um, Voyager. Okay. <laughs> so most of the cast of Voyager. Um, so I had to study up on that. Uh, some people who were on Discovery. Um, I have a lot of friends and, and people who have been on the show that have done guest spots on various Star Trek oh, cool. episodes. So that's probably maybe 10 or 20 people mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> who you know, have been in one or two episodes. Sure. There. So we've gotten to the, the how you've gotten this collection, but wh- what was it about TV Guide that said to you as a four-year-old, I need a subscription to this? Uh, I was an early reader. Okay. Um, my parents were not good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not entirely their fault, but um, I was a weird kid and mm-hmm. I read a lot and um, we had you know non-cable TV. Um, we moved around apartments a lot uh, and I watched as much as I could because uh, I didn't really like interact with other kids or like talk to my family. Um, and the TV guide allowed me to basically watch everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would often read about shows I never watched um, or just because it wasn't feasible. And I would literally sit and watch and read it from cover to cover. Wow. And then I would read it again and make a list of what I was going to watch mm-hmm. uh, for that week. Um, it also, from sort of an armchair psychologist standpoint, is... Uh, you know, having grown up in a very chaotic environment, it is stability. It's it's something to rely on. So if you go, this show, this says this is going to be on Thursday night at nine, it's on Thursday night at nine. So it's something to look forward to. It's it's sort of a stable thing. It's also nice to get mail. <laughs> I still like getting mail. Yeah. There's something about like knowing that something's coming in the mail that's very exciting. Oh no, for sure. If I go if I go check my mail and it's just like. You know the generic flyers or whatever. I'm so, I'm like ah oh. yeah. Not even a bill. 
It's like something I need to like actively respond to. Oh yeah, I, I would argue that a lot of the success of Amazon is just that people have fun getting things in the mail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of going to buy it, you're like, it's like I got a present. Sure, yeah. Now they text you a picture like the box mm-hmm. is at your door. Yeah, open it. Uh, yeah. Um. So yeah, I and mean, you mentioned going to to LA a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. Um. You've gotten some pretty amazing guests on your show. Yeah, I don't uh, know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Ted Danson's the one that jumps out to me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one was, um, you know, when I first started, I'm also I never ask anyone for a favor. Mm-hmm. I am the worst promoter of myself or anything I do because I'm just like, if I've ever had a sales job, it's lasted two days because I'm like, look, man, I don't care if you buy this. Here's what it is. If you need it, cool. If not see you like that's basically how i approach everything Mm -hmm. um so i when i first started i realized i do know a lot of people from just random various things that i've done over the years between music and comedy and 500 jobs and all kinds of stuff so um i sort of just started with people that i knew and then they had fun and they would recommend it to friends of theirs uh so that made it easier and then also um I think it's somewhat endearing to people when it, it's literally just me. Like it's not a, it's like, it's just me. Mm-hmm. So um, I think people go, oh, this is just this one guy who seems sincere about this thing. Um, it's also different enough of a concept that it might be fun. Uh, it's also simple enough of a concept that they, he explained it to me in one sentence and I know what it is. Uh, and also I can look at people who have guessed it on the show and none of them have been murdered. So <laughs> clearly this is all right. So, But Ted Danson um, is buddies with Jonathan Katz. Okay. And I know Jonathan Katz from stand-up in Boston. Um, and so Jonathan introduced me to Ted Danson. So that's how I met. It was like that simple. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like, yeah, cool. Um, and we were supposed to do it three, four times. And, you know, he was always busy because he's Ted Danson. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, oh, I'm really sorry. I owe you. Like, so I'm like, you don't owe me for not being able to do this free thing. <laughs> you're fucking you're Sam Malone, Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's – um. Yeah, so that that's basically how that one happened. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and you talked to Penelope Spheros. We did an episode oh, on yeah. her specifically talking about suburbia uh, not too long ago, but uh, that was great. And we, she's the best. Yeah. And like I know her from punk rock people. Mm-hmm. Like when she um, did Decline Three, um, you know my old punk band we played with Naked Aggression, who's mm-hmm. one of the bands that's featured in that movie. And um, you know, so her and I had a bunch of weirdly had a bunch of mutual friends. And in addition to just always loving her work, you know. Sure. Um, so yeah, she's one of those people that. There's this weird phenomenon that's happened with the show where I sort of uh, inadvertently have a much larger number of women on the show than men Mm -hmm. Um, for a couple of reasons, I think. One being that for whatever reason, the stuff that I gravitate towards tends to be made by women or the work of women for whatever. I don't know why. Uh, two, one of the things about the show is there are people who I would like to know more about. Essentially, I'd like to read a biography of that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm just going to go get it. And uh, by the nature of the 21st and 20th century in the United States, mostly women are not have not been allowed to tell their stories for whatever reason. So those are the people I'm like, I need to know about this. Sure. Um, and the other thing is that they just say yes, weirdly, which totally blew me away because I thought it would be the complete inverse. Mm-hmm. Um, some dude I don't know, like randomly is like, hey, will you 
you know, be on my show. And I'm like, yeah, come over to my house. Um, but I realized that like women have to be so much savvier and stronger <laughs> to deal with stuff, to navigate the, the sort of entertainment world. Oh, sure. That they're much less uh, uncomfortable with that stuff. And the, the only people I've ever had who are like, hey, you know, back off. What are you gay? Uh, <laughs> which just happened. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Have been act like male actors. Like back off, homo. Like that wow. kind of stuff. Yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's real weird. Yeah, that's, I, I to the 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 weird baggage that you have to bring to the situation to go from hey, do you want to be to my podcast to, yeah, like, I want to sleep with you. Yeah, what are you trying to pull, man? Oof. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, a surprising number of uh, of actors have uh, had that reaction. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, their therapists have their arm. Uh, oh yeah. Their plates full with those. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Um, I think part of it is, too, that, like, because of the era I grew up in, a lot of the people who, from the celebrity standpoint that I want to talk to, are people who, I don't want to say are on the downside of their career, but they're definitely not as in demand as they once were. Sure. And for the most part, women are used to that. <laughs> they're like, whatever, I'm just a working actor. And, you know, maybe maybe my uh, visibility peaked at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm just still just plowing through. And a lot of the guys are extremely bitter about it mm-hmm. or, you know, feel like they've been screwed over or, you know, like they're, they're very suspicious. Oh, like, yeah. and, and it's not fair to say that's every the, the ones that are have been in that category. There haven't really been many. But I think that's part of it. Yeah. That's sort of like I'm not a has been chip on my chip on their shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. Which they aren't. And um, but thinking that is weird. <laughs> exactly. For sure. Um. So one thing I've learned from listening to your show, and uh, this is going to get us to the topic of today's episode, mm-hmm. is uh, you're a big fan of Barney Miller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me a bit about that. What's your sort of um, relationship to um, what, may, what? what is it about the show that's – so Barney, to it. Barney Miller, uh, especially for people that grew up in New England, was ubiquitous on TV 38. Mm-hmm. Uh, they showed it an hour, sometimes two hours every day, uh, in addition to MASH. Uh, It's a very 70s show, even though it went into the 80s. As a kid, I did not like it. Mm -hmm. It seemed very boring. Uh, I also had a real, like, visceral aversion to all things 70s. And Barney Miller is very visually 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was kind of gritty and gross looking, and it was like gross New York. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, and, you know, it's essentially a show that's just five characters, almost always dudes in one room talking, which as a kid, that sounds like the most boring thing ever. Uh, but I did love Night Court, which is sort of uh, Barney Miller Jr. in a lot of ways. Okay. Because, uh, uh, which I found out later in life, a lot of alum, especially Ranho Ouija, who created Night Court, uh, started on Barney Miller. So Barney Miller uh, really begat uh, Night Court in that uh, if you're a comic book fan, uh, Night Court is the carnage to Barney Miller's venom. Oh, okay. There you go. (laughs) We could say. Um, So I love Night Court and I watch that all the time. Um, And then later in life, I rediscovered Barney Miller probably in my 20s and was like, how did I not? think this was the greatest thing ever because especially after watching decades of sitcoms and having started to stand up and I realized how hard it is to do a compelling funny uh, bittersweet show 
without ever leaving one room <laughs> and having, you know, very limited characters. Because it, it really is essentially a show about paperwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a cop show where you never see any action. Even when there is cop action, you just hear about it. It's, it's happened and they've come back and they're telling somebody. Uh, and it's like a play. Um, and the fact they're able to pull that off is amazing. You have 200 episodes of that. Uh, major recastings. The show just got better. It, it blows me away how good that show is. And so part of it was I would start to rewatch it just going, I can't. I'm having like a weird reaction to this. This can't. This has to be a false viewing. And I'd rewatch and be like, no, it's, it's just that good. Um, and I realized that Night Court didn't pull off what Barney Miller did in that they got sillier. Um, the tonal shifts of the sort of serious stuff with the comedy didn't quite mesh as well as Barney. Like you could tell it was someone who was uh, under the tutelage of Barney Miller without quite being able to do what uh, what was done on that show. So I just I love it. It's it's uh, the characters are great. It's really funny. Uh, it also is this weird social time capsule where they'll have these really heavy discussions about like the Vietnam War or like uh, can you rape your wife? You yeah, I, I didn't watch that one, but <laughs> yeah. I read the description and yeah. like because mar- like marital rape was not illegal right. at the time. Right. And it's still not in some places. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but to have a conversation about that in a very organic way with jokes that aren't at the expense of the seriousness, they're jokes that people who deal with horrible things every day would make, mm-hmm. you know. And it's silly, too, sometimes, you know, like there's an episode where there's a guy who thinks he's a werewolf mm-hmm. or, um, you know, there's one where they think the the precinct is haunted. Um, but it's it's just awesome. And then, like, the more I learned about the show, the more I liked it. Um, and uh, Danny Arnold, who created that show, he was kind of a bastard <laughs> and he managed to convince the studio after three episodes that he wouldn't do it in front of an audience anymore which was unheard of in the 70s. So that show was not shot in front of a live audience, which is craziness. Um, and it's a bottle episode every week. Like, right. that's nuts. That's nuts. What Do you know what reasoning he had for not wanting to do it with an audience? Because uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a TV taping, they're the worst. The worst. They So a half-hour sitcom as an audience member – you're probably there for six hours Mm -hmm. and it's no one has fun. (laughs) It's awful. Uh, They swap out jokes all the time because they're trying to play to the audience there who are in this very unnatural, um, unpleasant sort of hostage situation. And you're tied to that one night to shoot. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm I'm not making a show for the hundred people that you've managed to convince to be kidnapped for the night. You know, um, it really hinders us and what we want to do. So uh, he shot it whenever, you know, they, they sometimes shot for 12 hours. They sometimes shot over two days, you know, um, they swap things out because they thought they were better, not because they got a better reaction from the audience. Because sometimes sitcoms suffer from that in that, you know, an audience isn't going to laugh at the same joke three times. So you swap it out to keep them laughing. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a weird thing to do when you have 100 people in a crowd and you're making a show for millions of other people who aren't there. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, so as a writer, showrunner, he just hated that. It was um, 
you felt like it was very hindering to making something good. Yeah, I mean, imagine it's going to be kind of demoralizing to be like, well, we already shot the joke I wanted to tell. Yeah. But we got to change it up so they'll keep laughing. Right. 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 Um, yeah. I, I, and, you know, and I don't know if it's because they didn't film with an audience, but one thing that struck me watching this, and even um, we've done a, an episode on Taxi, mm-hmm. and that whole 70s era of sitcoms kind of a black hole for me because uh, I'm a bit younger than you. So, you know, these shows weren't on reruns. But then Nick at Night was still like, you know, it was Lucy and Bewitched mm-hmm. and Genie was in heavy rotation. Um, so I had everything that came before it and everything that is happening after it. Right. But that middle part's gone. And uh, with Barney Miller and also with Taxi, like they're never mugging. Like they're ne- it's never that that cheesy sitcom delivery where like, here's the pitch. There's the laugh. Let's yep. wait for them to settle back down and then to keep going with it. It's downplayed. And everybody, some sitcoms, everyone's sounds the same. So every character is interchangeable. They're just writer vessels. Right. And for shows like Taxi and Barney Miller, the characters are very, very, very solid. So every joke they make, every line they have comes from that character and who they are. So they don't need to mug. Like it works with the character. Mm-hmm. Um, but also both those shows have this sort of inherent sadness hanging over them, which I think was probably part of just the 70s. Especially New York in the <laughs> in late New 70s. York, yeah. yeah, but, you know, like Taxi's a show about people who uh, aren't what they're doing. You know, no one on that show is I'm a cab driver except for Alex, who's like, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. But every everyone is, that's their day job. You know, they're, I'm really this thing. Yeah. And they don't want to be there. And they're kind of... Um, you know, just getting through it. And the same with Barney Miller. They're in a, you know, police uh, precinct in New York. It's not one of the super exciting ones. You know, it's not NYPD blue. You know, they're not the SWAT team. They're paper pusher guys and they're dealing with like shoplifting and whatever, you know, and it's not glamorous and they're not all super happy. It's right. And, and, but it's also not what we get today sometimes, which is, what are the worst possible things that can happen to all the characters? Mm-hmm. It's just this like dread and awfulness. It's it's more realistic isn't really the word, but like it, it it's it's a normal level of misery. Yeah, I, I, well, I think normals like they're just normal people. Yeah, and like they're not uh, comically heightened scumbags like right. uh, you know like a you know Seinfeld or it's always sunny, and they're yeah. not. Uh, they're not like gratingly like sweet people either. Well, you didn't get sitcoms with bad people um, until really Seinfeld, which sort of ruined things in a lot of ways. <laughs> but like you, you had maybe the one character, like in Barney Miller, um, you have uh, the character who's played by oh my god, I'm losing the. the um, he wants to be a writer, and he always dresses immaculately. Oh, Harris. Harris. He's kind of he has a little bit of an I'm a, I'm better than this attitude, but they call him out on it. You know, um, and it's clear that he's overcompensating. And like Dan Fielding was like that in Night Court. Um, But now you have a show where it's all those people and they also aren't uh, being a jerk because they're overcompensating or like you don't have that gray. They're just like a bad person. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, it doesn't hold up on rewatching to Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. One of the episodes I watched, um, it was quarantine when they oh, all yeah. think they got smallpox yep. or they're trapped. Two-parter. Yeah. Uh, and Harris is talking in his sleep and just says everything he hates about everybody he works with. Yeah. Or the job in general. And they're, yeah. they're all just like one by one kind of like come in, listen to him and just kind of like 
take shots at him the rest yeah. of the episode. But my favorite thing about quarantine is you have uh, Inspector Luger, mm-hmm. uh, who is this old fifties cop guy uh, who you know is very traditional, and he's also uh, constantly lamenting like the good old days kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But there are two gay characters in that episode, and I know you know this because you watched it. But for people listening, um, who have have come back, they're they're featured earlier in the series, um, and essentially one of them got arrested for shoplifting or something, and he, he basically wants them to drop the charges so that he can move to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, because he's not allowed to leave the state because of the charges. Um, so they get stuck in there in the quarantine. And there's a scene where Luger's talking to them and the moment he realizes they're gay is one of the funniest, best things I've seen in a TV show. And not in like a... I mean, that was a big 70s cliche of like a mincing sort of uh, are you being served kind of... But it's not like that. The thing that... <laughs> The thing that triggers it is he's uh, he's just making small talk with the guy. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's like, ah, it's a nice sweater. Yeah, yeah that sweater. And he goes, oh yeah, it's Italian. And then he just goes, what? Like that's what he's like. Oh my god! Like for whatever weird reason. Yeah. And it, it leads to him and Barney having this conversation about um, gay people, where he, well, he he keeps talking. He gets called out on. Uh... A bunch of cops that he knew who had, you know, died these violent, glorious yeah. cop deaths. And he's like, Brownie. Yeah, he's like, I love those men. And then yeah. the two gay guys look over at him and he's like, not like that, but like, yeah. And then he keeps bringing up how much he loved these men, but like the way I did it was, right. it was accepted and that's the right way. And like, and one of the gay guys is like, it's not that different from what we're doing. Yeah. And he takes that on board though, because when he has that conversation with Barney, he's like, Barney, why, why do they do, why do they like that? Why do they do, why they do, why they do that? Like it's, he sincerely doesn't get it, you yeah. know? Um, and I, and I love the conversation that Barney has with him where it's, it's not, uh, very moral and like a, you're wrong and here's why. It's like, well, you know, that's how things, you know, it's like it's very um, respectful and well-rounded to everybody in the in, involved yeah. <laughs> somehow. Well, I mean, and, and sort of going off of that and sort of uh, Barney's role as sort of this, uh, you know, compassionate sort of a peacemaker a lot of times. Uh, the Harris incident is one that, like you said, kind of opens after the action. And uh, they're learning that Harris was shot at by other cops while trying to arrest somebody. Yeah. And it all, it all boils down to the fact that he was black. Yeah. Um, and not a uniform cop. They're right. detectives, so they're in suits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they accuse him of dressing a little flashy yeah. for a detective. Um, and, and, and Barney sort of pulls aside Wojo, who's Polish, and he's like, well, you know, if I told you a Polish joke, I understand that that would bother you. But all I can do is understand. Yeah. That's as close as I can get to it. And I, I was like, I can't believe the show from the 70s is hitting racism so head on like this. Oh, yeah. And all the time. Yeah. You know, there there's a great Wojo uh, episode where, you know, Wojo's sort of uh, on the surface is the quintessential like sort of wacky neighbor dumb character guy. Mm-hmm. But in, in him and Barney have a very father and son sort of Sam and Woody relationship if you look at it from a Cheers sure. viewpoint. But – Wojo was a Marine. He was in Vietnam. And he's very sort of jarhead Marine in a lot of ways. But there's an episode where they arrest a Vietnam War protester. Uh, and Wojo's kind of giving him crap. You know, he's and the guy's like, I was in Dom. I was a Marine. And that's why I'm against it. And they have this like 10 minute conversation about it uh, from the they're on two sides of this issue. But they both had the same experience. 
And it's really organic and fascinating and also incredibly frank and, and head on. And it, it shocks me every time I see it that that was just on a sitcom. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it was just because it still all happened so recently that there was that rawness and the bluntness to it. Because even Taxi kind of when uh, when when Reverend Jim gets introduced and uh, and, you know, Tony Danza is like, you know, I I went to the war. So guys like you could stay here and you know get fucked up. And he's yeah. like, oh. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it always weirds me out how much like for those of us that grew up the 80s and are a little younger than me. But like the Vietnam War, which had been over for five years before I was even born, was in so much of the media that we got and so many of the stories. And we've been in a war for t- almost twice as long as that now. And it pops up in almost nothing. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's it's the the damage that it did to people really resonated in stuff for for a long time after that, and I think of movies like Jacob's Ladder or you know um, or that sort of thing, and it just doesn't. Or even the movie House, you know, uh, speaking of Nightcore, Richard Mall, um, it just doesn't for whatever reason pop up as much. Yeah, I mean, it became sort of like the the. The sort of like dummy next door character is a trope. The Vietnam vet was a trope and stuff for a long time. And I, I think it's because it was the last war we had conscription. I yeah. think so. It probably touched more people, um, or more unwilling people. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's weird how much it pops up in that stuff. Sure. Yeah. And to your point, unless something is specifically about the the current war we're in, right. like it doesn't tend to pop up as often. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, sometimes you get stuff like The Punisher did a great uh, sort of run about PTSD and and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't pop up quite as much. What did you like about like what struck you when you saw it? Yeah, I think what I was struck by certainly was kind of what you've already talked about, just the the sort of the mundane aspects of the job. Um, You know, and as someone who really enjoys a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where I tend to check out is when it turns into a cop show. Yeah. Like when they had like the, they just kind of like pull the emergency brake on everything they've been doing. Cause they've got five minutes left to solve the case. Right. And it, it always tends to, you know, it happens by magic of, you know, TV cop show logic. It all kind of falls in their laps. Um, but yeah, this didn't seem like it was interested in that. The, the precinct functioned as the bar did in cheers. It was just yeah. an excuse to bring all these wacky characters into their periphery and, and see how they interact with them. And that was great. Yeah, it's a workplace sitcom. Yeah, exactly. It's a cop show sort of second. Sure. And the, again, like being surprised by something from that era, the sort of diversity of point of view and diversity of the cast was really interesting just seeing them in, in such close proximity. And um, Yeah, Jack Sue, mm-hmm. uh, who was, you know, Japanese-American. He was in a Japanese internment camp. Which, you know, and they would... They bring it up. Yeah, make it up. They make references to it all the time. He also was the first non-black artist signed to Motown. (laughs) Really? Yeah, he did an amazing record for Motown. He was in the original Flower Drum song. Mm -hmm. Uh, The guy was an amazing singer and had this life. He was also one of the original Groundlings. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So they 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 cast these people that. also, just as people had like pretty amazing uh, personal histories yeah. that they kind of brought to the roles. Steve mm-hmm. Lattisberg was a stand-up. Um, who you know. is who is Steve Lattisberg is? Uh, um, oh my God! Why am I? He replaced Fish. 
Uh, oh, uh, Dietrich. Dietrich. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, outside of the core group of guys, because um, I've only watched a, a handful of episodes, so a, like Dietrich was in one of the ones I watched. Yeah. Uh, Chano was in one of them. Yeah, Chano was the original guy. He left to get his own series, which was a huge bomb. Mm-hmm. And I, the show improves dramatically when he's gone, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I hate to say. But Dietrich is amazing. So for people who've never seen the show, Dietrich is like if Cliff Clavin wasn't a fool. <laughs> like he's a know-it-all, but he's right. Right. You know, he's just he's, he reads a lot, and mm-hmm. they're always like, "Well, Dietrich probably knows. I don't know." <laughs> you know, but he's also a weirdo. Like, oh yeah. They're like I don't get that guy. Sure, and it, like, it doesn't come from a place of like Cliff was always bragging about the the misinformation he had, but yeah. this guy just is like, "Yeah, I know this is right. I'm just going to say it." He was yeah. almost like a robot. Yeah, he's very low key and just like. It, you get the sense that he's being a cop just because he's like, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. I'm a smart guy. I know yeah. stuff. I can apply this to police work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and there's also a very strange thing about that show where how they handle sex workers. Mm-hmm. So there's prostitutes in like almost every episode and they're never seen as villainous and they're also never seen as victims. It's really weird. It's it's almost the way that like woke people will talk about it now, uh, which really shocks me um, because I know the seventies were obviously a little more permissive and whatever. But they're kind of just like, yeah, you know, they that's that's their job and they do their job and whatever. It's fine, you know. Like yeah. it's very weird. Yeah, there there is a prostitute in quarantine. Yes, and so when they're when they sort of realize that we might all have smallpox and. Barney's like, have you been inoculated? And she's like, for what? And yeah. says, smallpox. And she goes, well, let me check my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, you'd get those kind of jokes on Night Court too. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this was like there's an episode where Jack Sue um, gets to know this prostitute because she's in so often. And he asks her out. And they go out. You know, same with Wojo has one too. Like it's, it's – but it's not like that's not the – point of the episode mm-hmm. it's just kind of like yeah those are the people you meet at work right yeah and, and fish and that prostitute in quarantine had this weird like very like almost like we understand each other yeah because he's an old cop and, mm-hmm. and that the other great thing about him as a character is he has this like i just want to die yeah. <laughs> like but not in a cartoonish way like he's just been there seen everything and he's he's it's that I'm I'm getting too old for this shit. I can't w- wait to retire. But you believe it. Yep. It's not like, you know, the Lethal Weapon version. Sure. It's like this guy's just counting the days, man. He's done. Yeah. Well, she asked him how long he's been a cop. And his response is, I was the first. Yeah. <laughs> Did you watch the one where they accidentally took uh, eight pot brownies? Yes. Where <laughs> when they come back and they're like, the old guy's jumping from rooftop to rooftop. Yeah, he turned into a super cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's that one creep who is one of the guys who shot at Harris in that yeah. other episode. And he's just like, he's like, oh, fish, your wife was so hot. I'm still going to try to get with that. Yeah. And he's, and then like, and then he gets, eats the pot brown. He's like, you back the fuck away from my wife. Dude. Yeah. What's yeah. wrong with you? Who he's always complaining about otherwise. Oh, yeah. 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 And also if you, if you watched TV or movies in the eighties, this is a cavalcade of character actors. Everyone from everything pops up in this mm-hmm. uh, as, as some weirdo and you'll recognize them. Yeah, I mean that's what's that's a lot of fun going back to, especially this era of of stuff. Again, I, I kind of missed it, but seeing people who are like on their way to superstardom, or uh, or people who may have been like, you know, their their star was plummeting, and yeah, yeah. There's an episode with uh, Stuart Penkin who I've had on the show. He, okay, he did the voice of Earl Sinclair on Dinosaurs. Oh, cool. I know him from, uh, but he's been in a billion things. And uh, one of his first roles is in Barney Miller, and he plays a mailman who's been stealing people's mail. And I almost used this clip to open my show instead of the one from Lost Boys. But uh, 
they're like, you know, people need that mail. He's like, well, I give them the important stuff. They always get the TV guide. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but it's so funny seeing like young him and he pops up. It's just like all, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am. I really only knew Abe Vigoda from The Godfather mm-hmm. and then as, a Conan Abe, O'Brien. as the Conan yeah. O'Brien character. Yeah. Um, so seeing him sort of, you know, get to do something like this and, and you know, not to be unironically the, the comedic center point was, was a lot of fun. Uh, Harris, who I knew from Firefly. Yes. Yeah. Um, again, it's, it's uh, seeing, Ron Glass. Yeah. Seeing him young and spry and sort of on top of his game and such a different character. Too. And he's Shakespearean. I mean, that guy has a voice and a presence, but mm-hmm. he's playing like a very vulnerable, insecure guy. Yeah. And there's a subplot uh, in two whole seasons where he keeps he doesn't have a place to live. Mm-hmm. He's trying to buy a place and he can't. He falls through and he has to move in with Dietrich. <laughs> and it it it's not wrapped up in one episode. They don't always talk about it. Like they'll mention it here and there. Like Dietrich's like, "Hey, what time are you gonna be home tonight?" Like that. It's like very subtle and weird. Um, that, I like that kind of stuff where they have. It's not serialized, but there's definitely ongoing character stuff in that show where it does help to watch the show in order. Yeah, it's uh, not necessary but rewarding if you've been sticking with it the whole time. Uh, Now, do they ever do anything outside of their office? There's two episodes I can think of where they leave the office. Um, No, maybe just one. So the office is their main office and then Barney's office as well. It's kind of one set. But there's one where there are... These people who are being evicted from a building, which was a huge thing in New York in the 70s mm-hmm. where they were, you know, they burn people out of tenements and they won't leave. And so they go in to talk to them. And uh, they they actually that episode takes place in this like burnt out tenement building. Um, and then, oh, the other one I'm thinking of is they did a backdoor pilot for Fish's show, Fish, which okay. was the one season. So they go to his house. Um, I kind of don't count that because it's it's a backdoor pilot. But those are the only two I can think of. Wow. And it, like I said, it went for over 200 episodes. And I can think of two times they left the office. Yeah. I mean, they clearly had something if they didn't need to change the scenery. That's <laughs> so hard to do. I mean, yeah. that is a true – I mean, the performers are great. It's an awesome ensemble cast. But to have – like, that's a true writer show. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to write – uh, a 25-minute, funny, engaging play every week that has zero action and one setting. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's almost impossible. Yeah, and then to be juggling such heavy issues like with, you know, the, the racial stuff with the Harris incident. Um, and, I mean, talking about his performance, I mean, he's, you know, going from them kind of joking about the way, you know, the way he's dressed to giving these, like, rage-filled rants about, you know, what nobody's saying. Yeah. Um, and then, like, you know, cut to another episode and he's just like, you know, flailing around the office high on pop brownies. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's and, and the the weirdos they would bring in to play the criminals. Uh, some of the ones from the episodes I watched were uh, a flasher who like had, you know, no control. And then uh, a Wall Street guy who lost his job and has been begging for three years. And so, like, the whole B plot is him and his wife bickering about, like. Well, what's more demeaning, begging for money or like being a, you know, a being a cog Street. in the machine? Yeah, yeah. The the nature of it being a police show lends itself so well to like, oh, what what kind of goofy criminal can we introduce? And that's that's the X factor. Right. Right. And it's it that'll always be where the silliest stuff happens. But at the same time, like they make them characters as mm-hmm. well. Like there's one um, where there's a, a, a Russian violinist 
who wants to defect, which was big in the that happened often in the mm-hmm. 70s. People, you know, they'd, they'd send a gymnast over or someone or and, um so Barney has to like go toe to toe with like the State Department. <laughs> and it's silly on the surface, but it's actually like a really tense episode mm-hmm. um, when it's kind of this silly thing. And, and it ends up, uh, you know, this this defector talking to the to the Russian embassy guy. And they're having like a conversation about like the nature of like uh, dictatorships in the middle of the show. It's 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 fantastic. Yeah, uh, there were two Polish characters in um, Hash, the one where they yeah. eat the pop brownies. Um, and you know, there's the whole idea of you know, like we left we left Poland so we could express ourselves freely, and like the, the great crack where he's like, you don't, you people from America don't know what it's like to be oppressed. And Harris is long. Harris is like, yeah. how long have you been here exactly? Yeah, but it's a different thing. Oh too. yeah, completely. It's, yeah, it's it, to have that that many uh, to have that many different viewpoints and experience levels and characters and to do them all well I I, I, just, I don't know how you do that yeah I don't know either um, and again I, I think to your point about the 70s and just sort of uh, a bunch of people with you know these really deep raw personal and cultural wounds just like we just all gotta live together and we gotta figure our shit out yeah they figured it out and that was the thing too in the 70s before TV changed in the eighties with the Reagan morning in America stuff where it was, you know, we still did get, uh, realism quote unquote in the eighties, but it was still much more aspirational Mm -hmm. and it wasn't as reflective of the day to day kind of gunk. And the seventies was much more matter of fact about it in a way that was kind of like, yeah, this is what we deserve. Right. We, we screwed this up. So sorry. Sure. (laughs) It was kind of that, attitude which was uh you would very rarely get a show that would do that now right yeah i mean 80s and 90s sitcoms definitely did not reflect any remote sense of normalcy in terms of day-to-day american life i mean i feel like roseanne grace under fire sort of did with that struggle but it it they what happened was they got much better data about who spent money Mm -hmm. and it's they didn't have a name for it, but it's tween girls. <laughs> and they said tween girls don't want to watch shows that reflect their parents not paying the mortgage. They want to watch aspirational stuff about people older than them that are glamorous. They want to watch 90210. They want, you know, which then morphed into things like the, for a variety of reasons, but the things like, you know, the Kardashians and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So they were like, that's how we make money. Um, a show like uh, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman which I never liked because it sort of uh, is an example of my bias against shows without electricity. But um, <laughs> but that show was enormously rated, huge. It was essentially the number one show on that network. And they canceled it because it made them no money because the people that watched it were old people and old people don't change their buying habits. So you can't influence them with ads. So it's a useless from an ad perspective, it's a useless audience. Yeah. So they canceled the show. Sure. And that one in particular didn't leave a lot of room for product placement. No, no. There's no <laughs> other way to put that stuff in there. Yeah. Um, so it, it's when they started figuring that stuff out, which is also where you got shows having a lot less time to sort of um, marinate. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, shows don't even get a whole season. Um, Cheers would have been gone after the first season. It was in the bottom 10. Sure. Um, Hill Street Blues, all those shows. But they were like, well, we don't have anything better. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like there's, I remember, you know, in the late 90s, 
uh, during the summertime, middle of the afternoon on, sh- on channels like TBS, it would be like the the sort of like one season wonders that like it's like oh yeah, Ned and Stacy, I remember that. Yeah. Or uh, you you kind of vaguely remember the commercials or the lead in into something uh, you know, or it was after something much better. Well, NBC was constantly trying to fill that 9.30 slot on Thursdays. After Night Court left, they moved it to Wednesdays in 92. Uh, They had three really solid shows, and then they could not find a show to put in that slot. And they had shows that did well just because they had the three shows around it and ER. So you had, like, Veronica's Closet, Caroline in the City, The Single Guy, like shows that are not great, but would be the number one show by far now with mm-hmm. the number of ratings they were getting where it's just like they couldn't figure out what worked. Right. Yeah, the whole ratings thing too is sort of what was bad 20 years ago. Like execs would be killing themselves to get that kind of stuff oh, now. Oh, the number one show on television now from just a numbers standpoint would not crack the top 200 yeah. in 1995 mm-hmm. or 1999 even. Yeah. Everything's niche now, which is good and bad. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, you do get an opportunity to see some more um, experimental and sort of daring stuff, but at the same time, too, it's a lot of trend chasing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird, too. Like, the the streaming model is very strange. So I've one of the things that I've been lucky enough to get to do since I started doing the show is I've been – I pitch a lot of shows to various entities, uh, which is bizarre. Um, but I've learned how sort of Netflix and Hulu and, and, and Prime and all those networks work – And it's not anything that makes sense. Essentially, they don't care how many people watch a show. It doesn't matter. They want new subscribers to come on because of one show. Because that's how they make money. You go, oh, I don't have Netflix. I want to watch that one show. I'm going to pay the 12 bucks a month. And then I forget about it. And it just keeps going. Mm -hmm. So the reason they canceled the Marvel shows, which... Disney spun as we're taking them to our thing, which had nothing to do with it, is Netflix basically said, look, everyone who's going to sign up for Netflix to watch these shows has signed up. We're not. That means we make no more money off it. Essentially, if everyone that has Netflix watches this show, so it gets 100% of our viewers, it's no good to us. Yeah, that's money they've already got. Yeah. We need new people to come on, which is good and bad. But the good part is it means they're constantly trying to find niche stuff for markets they haven't tapped. So you're going to get weird stuff. You're going to get a Dark Crystal reboot. You know, yeah. <laughs> stuff where they're just like, who, has, who haven't we reached yet? Mm-hmm. Um, and so also as a result, there are audiences that, and it's sort of a patronizing thing, but you might get good work out of it, that haven't been uh, catered to or programmed to that will be now because they're an untapped market. Right. Um, so it's, it's a weird time. Oh, sure. I mean, I kind of feel like HBO's thought process with doing um, his Dark Materials so soon after Game of Thrones is, oh, well, the people who started Game of Thrones 10 years ago, they've all gotten together, they've gotten married, and now they have kids. Yeah. So they can they can watch this as a family. And then when this is done, those kids will be grown up and we'll do some very grown-up fantasy. And then the cycle yeah. will just keep going. And HBO is, is also sort of an older model where they're like, we need something to continue that same audience. We mm-hmm. need to keep them. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you look at Amazon Prime, they're essentially rebuilding cable. So the way their model works is you pay their flat fee to get Prime, but then you can add 
CBS, whatever it is, or, you know, they're the shutter or whatever, which they call an app, but it's really just a channel. You're just paying a la carte. It's a la carte cable. Yeah. Oh, but it's slowly morphing into what we knew cable to be growing up. Yeah. We're just rebuilding cable. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's going to be some like, so what's going to maybe like, will satellite come in with like the next, <laughs> they'll depends, reinvent themselves. Depends as... on how many divorced dads there are and how many, <laughs> and if people get nostalgic for scrambled pornography. You know, I think that's due for a comeback. <laughs> it really point. is. It really is. It's true. Um, if uh, if you wanted to make a recommendation off of Barney Miller for like where to go next, what? Uh, like if you like Barney Miller, yeah. watch this. Um, Night Court is the sort of obvious next step. Um, but weirdly... The show that has more in common with Barney Miller is the first season of the John Larroquette show. Okay. Which he did immediately after Night Court. And uh, Dan Harmon got his start on that show. Uh, That show is John Larroquette playing a recovering alcoholic who's ruined his life. And the only job he can get is as the the night manager of a bus station. And it's shot on film. It's at night. It's a dirty, gross bus station. There are sex workers hanging around. There's people who don't want to be there. He's constantly being tempted to go back to drinking because it's terrible. Um, but it's a lot more like Barney Miller than Night Court was in a okay. lot of ways. Uh, it's great. The second season, they moved it to the daytime. They started shooting on a video. They tried to make it much more sitcom-like. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first season's fantastic. Uh, also, they write Lenny Clark as a gay policeman, and Lenny had no idea his character was gay, and it's very clear that the writers did not like him, and it's one of my favorite things, because oh. he sucks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's great. And what is it about... Um, you said that Night Court is sort of like the Barney Miller Jr. It's yeah. a little sillier. Yeah, I mean, I, and I love Night Court, but yeah, it's Reinhold Luigi who was one of the head writers on Barney Miller. Uh, he basically did his version of Barney Miller. It's it's sillier because I think of just the cast a little bit. Like Harry Anderson is a little bit, you know, it doesn't have the gravitas of Hal Linden. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get into the sort of heavy character dynamic stuff about race and gender and stuff as much. I think part of that is just because it was the 80s as well. But at the same time, like, Mac marries Quan Lee on that show because he uh, saved her family when he was in Vietnam, you know, and he marries her so she can move there. And then they fall. Like, there's there are things like that. Um, but it, it just, it's a little broader. Sure. It's a little more of a sitcom. Um, and when they do have what my wife calls night court moments, which usually when Harry Anderson makes this like very sincere speech, uh, it, it doesn't seem natural. Um, and it, and it, the tone shifts weirdly, but it's still a very enjoyable, fun show. Yeah. Yeah. That was another one that I remember kind of being on, but, uh, uh, whether I was too young or, or I don't know if maybe it was just on and nobody was really paying attention to it in my house, but it was just, it was kind of yeah. there, but TV 56 used to air it at like five and five thirty every yep. night, but it, it went from 82 to 92 mm-hmm. and 92 was a really weird transitional year where all these big hit shows that had been the, especially for NBC were their cornerstones for most of the eighties all ended. So cheers ended night card ended. Uh, Miami Vice ended, which had actually gone into the 90s. Dallas, uh, you had like shows that you didn't know went until 1992. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so 
they were really trying to figure out what the hell they were doing. Mm-hmm. So that that year is a weird year, and they buried a lot of those shows to try and re you know reinvent things. Yeah, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, what did they really have going? Because Seinfeld started in the late eighties, right? Seinfeld so then... started eighty nine. So Seinfeld had taken off by then, but like Friends hadn't started yet. Yeah, um, was Wings pre or post Friends? Wings was during. So okay. Wings started like ninety. So it was about midway through Cheers, and then went to like ninety six, I think. Um, so they started to get their footing. Like in my opinion, the the best sitcoms of the nineties that hold up the best are uh Nightcore I'm um, not Nightcore Wings, um News Radio, Spin City. Wow. Those three shows on uh, Mad About You. Okay. Are the best sitcoms of the nineties. Better than Seinfeld, better than Friends. I never liked Friends. I realize it's become the Brady Bunch of millennial generation. It really has. They watch it all the time. They yeah. can reference everything. Um, and that's probably about what it should be. Mm-hmm. Seinfeld was innovative at the time. It was very funny at the time. I do not find it holds up to re- re-watching because all the humor is plot-based. Yeah, It's sort of what, oh, I can't believe that, and not character-based. Whereas news radio mad about you wings and spin city are much more traditional and sort of timeless yeah yeah news radio is fucking weird it's great it's, it's such it's a strange weird. show yeah. yeah um it kind of blows my mind because i i did not engage with anything joe rogan did afterwards yeah so i still think of him as just like joe the handyman yeah which is about what he should be <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. um yeah, so every time someone's like, oh, Rogan blew my mind on his podcast yeah. this week, I'm like, ah. Joe the Handyman? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he blew Phil's mind when he That's true. fixed the treble on his radio, yes. and then he learned the rap had lyrics. It's true. Um, I was always a big fan of Third Rock from the Sun. I always thought that was a, a weird one. I and... could never get into it. Like, that was too silly for me. Yeah. And it might have been that I was too old. But I, I loved Kate and Allie mm-hmm. as well. Kate and Allie is... The sort of two most underrated 80s sitcoms that went on for a long time that I don't think people revisit are Newhart and Kate and Alley, mm-hmm. uh, which were weirdly both on Monday nights on CBS, which was a great night lineup because you had Murphy Brown later, but like Designing Women, um, uh, Frank's Place, just, just a great night of television. Um, and Kate and Alley is amazing. And I love Jane Curtin. And I just didn't like the way she was used on Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah. <laughs> it was like too broad. Uh, also, I... Love John Lithgow and Buckaroo Banzai as mm-hmm. Lizardo. And I was like, this is like Lizardo light. Yeah, I can see that. I think for me, going back a few years ago and rewatching it, what I didn't realize when I was a kid uh, is that, you know, there are four aliens forced into human bodies at like at four different points in a human's life cycle yeah. where like the only thing on your mind is sex. Yeah. Um, so it's a super horny show. It is. But yeah. it was also like family viewing. And I'm like, they, we watched this, but I couldn't watch The Simpsons. It was yeah. the weirdest thing. Every episode is just about how how any of them can get laid as quickly as possible. It's, it's how coded it is. You know, mm-hmm. like they, they present it more like a French farce. You yeah, know? yeah. It's more like uh, like Benny Hill, mm-hmm. you know, whereas uh, weirdly a lot of people I grew up with or people that I know when they were growing up, their parents banned The Simpsons because they felt it was disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just the, car- the, an- the fact that it was animated. Yeah. It was just like, oh, cartoons can't talk like that yeah even though the sort of history of not adult but like primetime cartoons had been 
the majority of sitcom cartoons were primetime cartoons for adults. Yeah. You know, Flintstones, Jetsons, Hi Honey, I'm Home. Like, those were all nighttime shows. Sure. The Flintstones <laughs> were in cigarette ads. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're also – so this is going to be coming out beginning of October. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you have any sort of like deep – like TV Halloween special picks you might recommend? I was a teenage werewolf. Okay. The, oh, I'm sorry. I was a middle-aged werewolf, which is an episode of Highway to Heaven, mm-hmm. which is a show I despise uh, and is the most saccharine nonsense. But their Halloween episodes are fantastic. They did three of them. Uh, Michael Berryman plays the devil in the first one. Michael Berryman was in Hills Have Eyes. Oh, and, okay. Um, but... This one is written and directed by Michael Landon, who starred in I Was a Teenage Werewolf in the 50s. And it's very smart and very funny. uh, And it also manages to capture what Halloween felt like when you were 12 years old better than anything else I've ever seen. It just is perfect. It's always on my list. Uh, my so-called life's Halloween special, uh, the Nikki Driscoll one, mm-hmm. uh, is always has a, a special place in my heart because that you know I was fourteen when that was on, and they're fourteen. You know, it's just like that was my year. Yeah, <laughs> that year I watched that one every year. Uh, New Heart, Take Me to Your Loudon, which is uh, playing War War of the Worlds, has some of the funniest uh, jokes that show ever had. Um, some stuff they got away with, I, I can't believe. They're it, basically all the town folk think that War of the Worlds is real, <laughs> and they're like accusing everybody of being an alien. And at one point, Stephanie uh, accuses. Uh, Bob Newhart's wife, and he, she goes, whenever we go into town, she's always buying batteries. <laughs> she's like, Stephanie. <laughs> and it's like such a joke that I can't believe they, you know, like that kind of, but it's also very funny. Um, the Roseanne ones, you know, as much as she's an awful person, all of their Halloween episodes are fantastic um, and just really managed to capture that uh, that sort of blue-collar, you're going to go in the hole financially to do a dumb thing that you all enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, those those are the ones that I watch every year for sure. Cool. There's a bunch of shows, too, that had Halloween-like episodes didn't air on Halloween. Like Facts of Life had an episode called uh, Seven Little Indians. Mm-hmm. That is uh, – there's uh, um, Maurice LaMarche is in it playing Rod Serling. There's murders. It's just craziness. That one I always watch every year, but that one aired in like April. Yeah. Um, so you get those every now and then. There's an episode of the Hogan family with zombies, and mm-hmm. like it, there's a two-part Halloween Growing Pains in sort of the the bad years of Growing Pains when Kirk Cameron post cocaine became incredibly religious. But it's a two-parter anthology, and they it, it's really weird. Um, there's a better Halloween episode in season three of Growing Pains where Ben goes to a Halloween dance. Uh, that one I, I like quite a bit. Um, was uh, was the Punky Brewster the episode Carol's of the cave? Punky, that wasn't a Halloween episode. It was just uh, just it, a one off traumatic a, yeah, experience. Yeah, it was a two parter. <laughs> they did that a lot. Punky Brewster, man. There's a there's a three parter where Henry goes into the hospital with bleeding ulcers because his photography business burns down. Oh so God. they take Punky and put her in Fenster Hall <laughs> to get adopted by people. And there's a guy who comes in named Blade who who tries to steal a kid and he has a knife fight with Mike and it's like this grim thing. There's a Another episode of Punky Brewster where she hears about the Night Stalker on television, 
the, the actual murderer, the Night Stalker, mm-hmm. and is scared. And Henry has to have this conversation about or how there are murderers in the world. And, yes, sometimes they kill kids. And, like, just this horrific thing. Wow. And they, they played that beat a lot because I remember uh... – my introduction, not just to the Challenger incident, but to NASA in general, was yeah. Punky Brewster. Well, because they had written her as wanting to be an astronaut for a season and a half before that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also one of the meanest things I've ever heard on television, ever uttered, was on a Punky Brewster episode. Ooh, what was it? Uh, there's an episode where there's a janitor, and she's an idiot savant. Um, she plays the violin, but she's also mentally challenged. And... Um, they're learning about classical music and uh, she's kind of in the back of the class and they see her like, you know, moving the bow. And uh, Alan, who was such a dick, that kid. Yeah, he was obnoxious. Irredeemable dick. He would be the star of the show now. But he goes, hey, what are you going to do next? Play a mop solo? And so, which is actually funny. And then they're like, Alan, stop. And he just keeps needling this poor woman and she starts crying. And then they go, Alan, you hurt her feelings. He goes, pfft. She doesn't have feelings. She's a retard. Oh, my God. (laughs) But kids I grew up with said stuff like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so Mike kicks him out of class and makes him have to write a report on the Special Olympics or something. But, like, even as a kid, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. It's, like, again, it was a kid's show. Like, and, you know, sure. Like, you got to have the, like, the, you know. Bully or like bully adjacent character. Yeah, but he like, was her friend. He wasn't even a bully. Right. They hung out with him. He was an <laughs> asshole. That's inexcusably mean. Well, there's also the one where the, the thing that I did love about that Alan character was a lot of times that asshole kid you knew would actually be really funny, mm-hmm. but would in horrible at the same time. And so they did actually write things that were funny for him that were just you shouldn't you shouldn't say it. But like, you know, what are you gonna do? Play a mop solo is funny. Yeah. And like there's an episode where they're learning CPR. And uh, they have a Recessa Annie dummy. And uh, so Mike's like, the teacher is like, ask her if she's okay. He's like, Annie, are you okay? And Alan goes, why don't you kiss me and find out? <laughs> and so he's like, he kicks him out of class. <laughs> and like, it's funny. You yeah. Know? But it, but I like that there are consequences. Like they weren't just like, oh, Alan, they're like, get out of here. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Yeah, it's true. I did always sort of, in the moment, that kid in class would like, would always get the laugh. Yeah. But then in hindsight, you're like, what an asshole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you're like, oh, that was, that was funny. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, you know, I'm sure they have whatever going on at home. Oh, whatever. sure. But, uh, and that's their, like, defense mechanism. But it is always kind of impressive when they write that asshole character uh, well like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. He wasn't just a dick. Mm-hmm. He had multitudes. He did. He really did. Uh, well, Ken, thank you so much for coming down. I appreciate uh, you talking to us through Barney Miller. Anytime. Oh. I, I will talk Barney Miller for hours. Great. We might have to have you back after we watch some more episodes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Cool. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks. That was terrific. Learned a lot there. That was fun. It's funny. I, I never really put those comparisons together, but his experience with the show was, was pretty much mine, where I did gravitate towards uh, Night Court over Barney Miller. I would never have connected the two until he made that observation. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense. And Night Court was the wackier show. And it got really strange and really silly. Um, and I haven't watched Night Court in a long, long time. So I don't know if it holds up. Um, but I enjoyed watching Barney Miller. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Um, to your point about Night Court getting really wacky, it didn't come up in my conversation with Ken, but he does have a theory that he's sort of brought up on his show that once a once a TV show hits like four seasons, shit just starts to get weird because they've 
they've kind of done all the normal stuff, so yeah. they gotta have they kind of have to up the ante a little bit. Well, what did you think of the episodes you watched for for Barney Miller here? Yeah, I, I thought at first I was just like, oh, I get this. I'm not sure I'm connecting with it. The third episode on the list, which is the Harris incident, was when I was like, oh, okay. This this makes sense. I get this now. And I was really surprised with how it talked about race. I didn't expect that from from a show from the 70s, I guess. And maybe that's my own, I don't know, lack of imagination. Or, or unfortunately feeling that we're smarter now when we aren't. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a sort of a double-edged sword to the, um, you know, conversation around, uh, you know, what you quote-unquote can and can't say in TV and movies anymore. And I don't, I don't love getting into that discussion because I feel like a lot of times the person who says, oh, you can't, couldn't say that now, they're usually coming from it from a, a wrong-minded place. I think there is uh, a certain credibility to that argument I think um, you know there are things that were said in you know like an all in the family that uh, you wouldn't hear on a regular primetime sitcom um, probably for the better although the context was uh, usually right-minded in in the case of all in the family sure um, but I also think you get this really the flip side is you get these really blunt conversations about something like race in a Barney Miller yeah and again all in the family um, yeah I was um I wasn't surprised, but I, I, there's so much overlap with this show and, and Taxi, which we did an extensive mm-hmm. episode on. They really feel like two peas in a pod. I do think it's interesting how we've sort of, because our, our relationship to and our definition of what a sitcom is has evolved so much since the 70s, um, that the term bottle episode has sort of become this descriptor for series, for full series. But so many of the shows from the 70s and even earlier, like Lucy and The Honeymooners, all took place in a single location. Uh, This show did. Taxi mostly took place in a single location. Um, Cheers. And, and, you know, obviously there'd be moments where they'd leave. And and they don't, in the episodes I watched for this, they didn't leave at all. But that felt sort of like the bread and butter for a lot of these shows. And I don't know if that was because it was, it was more affordable to just have a set with uh, some actors uh, and just have them kind of interacting with each other each episode. But I thought that was kind of interesting that, that, Oh, this is a, a, the show is a a bottle episode show. (laughs) Right. But I thought the cast was really great. Um, Everyone was, was, was really funny and, uh, everyone kind of gets their moment to do their thing. And, and, and it had that overlap with, with a lot of my favorite shows from the era where it's like, these people are all really sad, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite genres of storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think you would be interested in watching more of Barney Miller? Yeah, I think I, I, think I need to, to get a better handle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched all of those, but I feel like with... Um, uh, with eight seasons, um, that's really such a small sampling of of what the show was probably capable of. Um, so I think it, it would uh, I would have to kind of dip in more in order to really fully kind of grasp it. I guess. Sure. Although it, it is self contained, um, like they're a little mini plays, mm-hmm. like Taxi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd definitely like to watch a few more. Awesome. Yeah. I don't know if I was taken with this as much as I was with Taxi. 
Yeah. And I'm not sure why. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I I had really no concept of what to expect from this show, besides how I had heard Ken talk about it on on his podcast. Um, Yeah, I think there's a lot there that's definitely up my alley. So, yeah, I'll definitely be going back to it at some point. Right on. So thanks again to our guest, Ken Reed, for coming on the show. You can find uh, TV Guidance Counselor on Apple Podcasts. I definitely recommend it if you're interested in this show. TV Guidance Counselor is right up your alley. It's super fun. Uh, Ken is just a wealth of weird TV knowledge, and it, it's always uh, infectious and fun to listen to him. He has great guests on. Uh, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at TV Guidance and TVGuidanceCounselor.com as well. And that about does it for us. Uh, going forward, we are going to be doing shows every week this month, starting with Texas Chainsaw Massacre next week to kick off our, our run of horror episodes. I'm so excited to yeah. talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though we've already talked about it. And I'm excited to have finally checked it off my list because uh, this was a blind spot for me, not for Matt. Yeah, uh, this is a, a personal favorite of mine. Um, I watch it whenever I can. I think we've talked about it on the show before, but I'm a big horror movie fan, so this is pretty exciting for me. Um, and I hope everyone uh, learns a little bit more about horror and we hopefully fill in some blind spots. Yeah, I'm excited. And, uh, you know, as uh, as we're going through, if, if you think of any uh, horror blind spots that uh, that maybe you, you're, you've been meaning to get to, uh, drop us a line on Twitter or whatever and, and let us know what you're visiting for the first time this October. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? You can follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Drop us a line at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? Thanks, as always, to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at What Cheer Club, and you can learn more about them on their website at whatcheerclub.org.